Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Just one announcement before we get to today's guest. You can now support this podcast directly through my website at colemanhughes.org rather than going to Patreon. I've gotten a lot of comments from people who want to support my podcast, but can't because they in principle don't support Patreon. And I agree with their reasoning, which is that Patreon has been known to sometimes deplatform content creators that don't pass its political purity test. And while I don't have any immediate fear that I'm going to become a victim of their political bias, it's a problem that I ever have to think about it at all. So because of that, I've created an option for supporting me directly through my website. And I encourage you, if you have a moment, to switch over from Patreon, stop being a patron there, and move over to my website and give the same amount. And certainly, if you're deciding to support the podcast for the first time, I ask that you do it through my website rather than through Patreon. Every so often, I feel I should remind listeners that percent of you who donate is in the single digits. And I am truly grateful for everyone who does because the quality and the pace of output of this podcast is a direct result of how many people support it. If you've noticed, I'm only doing two podcasts a month. The reason is that I would need more people to support the podcast before it became financially feasible for me to create more. I'm editing each episode myself. If more people support the podcast, I can outsource the editing and spend more time preparing for the guests themselves. I could afford to send a mic to each guest so that I could do remote episodes more easily. So if you appreciate what I'm doing, and you have the means, please do go to my website at colemanhughes.org and donate. My guest today is Thomas Chatterton Williams. Thomas is a contributing writer to New York Times Magazine and a columnist at Harper's. He's written two memoirs, both of which I really recommend. One is called Losing My Cool, and the more recent one which we talk about in this episode is Self-Portrait in Black and White. We talk about Thomas's background growing up in a mixed-race household. We talk about race as a social construct. We talk about identity politics, the conflict between race consciousness and colorblindness, reparations, affirmative action, the SAT's adversity score initiative, the logic of diversity, Asian-American overachievement, the relationship between agency and race, We talk about Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, and related ideas. We talk about the relationship between privilege and living a meaningful life. And finally, we talk about the difference between France, where Thomas now lives, and America, and in particular, the French system of official legalized colorblindness. Due to a technical mess up, we lost the video for this episode. So this is an audio-only episode. And because it's a long episode, I'm going to put the second half behind a paywall. The first hour or so is available to all. 
So without further ado, Thomas Chatterton Williams, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I read your first book, Losing My Cool, which is a memoir, and was astounded by how many similarities we have in our lives, in our past. Um, It hit very close to home, almost too close to home. I really couldn't put it down. And so, like, we, we both grew up in New Jersey, not that far from each other. Where about, were you? Uh, Montclair. Oh, yeah, that's very close. Yeah. yeah. And you talk about, I, thi- I think in your book you talk about hanging out in the Maplewood area, mm-hmm. which I had a lot of friends there. And you talk about, you almost went to the Del Barton High School, mm-hmm. which was my high school's main rival, although rival implies that we ever had a chance <laughs> they beating beat them. <laughs> yeah, 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 they beat us. Um, but we grew up about 15 years apart. Mm-hmm. You, you were born in 81? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was born in 96. That's, that's sobering and humbling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so talk about your background a little bit. How did you come to think about race as a social construct? Uh, what in your past led you to be emotionally motivated to explore these ideas as a writer? Sure. Um, so my father is really old enough to be my grandfather, and... Um, so he's just turned 82, mm. born in 1937. He's from the, the South. He's had a really American, black American experience, you know, mm-hmm. from the South. Uh, he is exactly between um, slavery and my children in terms of generational uh, position. His grandfather mm-hmm. was born in the last year of chattel slavery, mm-hmm. and his grandchildren now are, you know, equally distant from him. He's from Texas, right? Yeah, yeah. Galveston, Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's a sociologist by, by training. And my mother is too. And my mother's white, um, uh, the, the daughter of evangelical Christians from San Diego, and the only one in her family to kind of break free of that kind of um, small social world and, and kind of get out into the world. She went to school in Illinois and volunteered at soup kitchens in Chicago. And she just never... Um, saw race the way that uh, the people she grew up with did. Um, so by the time that my brother and I were coming up in New Jersey, and my brother in the 70s and me uh, in the 80s, 90s, um, we were just in a house where my father would say things like, you know, your mother is not white, she's just light-skinned because she's got black consciousness and none of this is real anyway. Mm-hmm. But he would also really talk to us about racism and about how real um, the effects of uh, this racial construct are, and, ha- and and I could see with my own eyes how his life had been impacted by race. So from a very young age, far before I could articulate it, I understood that there was kind of absurdity and a tension and a contradiction that my dad and my mom didn't believe in race, and I didn't really believe in race, because how can you have a, um, how can you have a parent that's a different race than you, you know? But I, I also very much was raised with the idea that the one-drop rule um, obtains that uh, that my brother and I were black, and that it was a kind of uh, it was like arguing how many angels can stand on the head of a needle mm. to, to to say that we were biracial because my father raised us to think that, and to, to truly believe, and it probably was the case when we were growing up that that wouldn't matter very much um, in certain situations. Mm. Um, it was only when I had children of my own that some of these things from my childhood really began to cohere into um, an understanding that. To get to transcend racism, to, to get past some of these things, and it's going to be very difficult if it's going to happen at all. We're going to have to kind of get rid of the, the categories that we operate in. These categories have failed us, you know? And, and, and so I have a kind of personal, uh, I have a lot of biographical experience with exposure to the fiction of race. Mm. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit before we talk about 
how that's changed over the course of your lifetime and then talk maybe more broadly about what it means for something to be a social construct. Um, so what, you know, roll back the clock, you're 15 or 16 or 17. What does it mean for you, Thomas, to be black at that time? That would put me in the mid nineties. I, I would call that like, that's prime hip hop era. You know, like I losing my cool was very much a, it was very much a, a memoir about, um, learning to perform a kind of racial authenticity that was very much uh, glamorized and sold back to um, all Americans through hip-hop culture, but that was very much tied up with uh, my sense of myself and my, my, my peer group's sense of themselves. So uh, I'm 15, and being black was... Um, the word I come back to over and over again is performance, and I'm aware of the fact that when you're... When you're mixed, you can kind of approach these things with the fervency of the convert. You know, you can overperform to overcompensate. You're light-skinned. People are aware you have a white mother. You want to prove that you're not, uh, you know, an imposter. Mm. But, um, but, yeah, I just immersed myself in, 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 in not the music of hip-hop itself, but, but, but the idea of hip-hop as a kind of all-consuming secular religion, a culture mm. that informed everything from the way I shook hands to the way I dressed to the types of schools I thought were appealing to me. I, I made my, I, I chose not to go to Del Barden because that was too far away from a, an idea of a authentic um, hip-hop era blackness in my mind. Mm. So talk about how the birth of your daughter changed that, if at all. Like, what, what was that, what was it like for you to, to, to father someone who was so sort of unambiguously white in how she looked, how she presented herself. Blue eyes, right? Blue eyes, blonde hair, very, very white skin. Mm. Um, the thing, the main thing is that her hair is very curly, so mm. that's the one incongruity. But, you know, I just want to say, like, by the time I got to Georgetown, studied philosophy, went to college, became an adult in my 20s, I was able, I didn't have this kind of overcompensatory uh, um, performative racial identity but I did still really have deep inside me the idea that race was binary. Mm. Even if it was a construct, it was binary, and you were either black or you were white. Yeah, just, looking at the pictures of you, 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 you had this nice excerpt in New York Times magazine of your book, which I recommend everyone read. Uh, and you have these old pictures of you. And there's a picture of you. You look about 13 years old, mm -hmm. maybe. And growing up, having grown up in roughly the same place as you, if I had seen you at that time you would have been clearly black to me right? in, in the black category because of how your hair was, just the... the so much of race has to do with your, hair. Yeah, it has a lot to do with hair. It has something to do with facial, subtle facial phenotypical traits that are tough to describe, mm -hmm. but one knows when one sees. Mm -hmm. So it's easy for me to see how as a kid, despite being fairly light-skinned, you would have been fairly easily categorizable categorizable as black yeah uh, in, the white in, kids didn't think of my brother and me as white and right. the black kids basically are accustomed to accepting a wide variety of that's right uh, you know and, and you know in your book that quote-unquote black people in america really do run the gamut and i think you say that you know despite your daughter being sort of blonde and blue-eyed your father who grew up in segregated texas yeah. under jim crow remembers black quote-unquote black kids going to segregated schools with him that looked more or less like your daughter did absolutely right that's his, i loved his response to uh, when she was born um 
my dad came, my parents came about two weeks after my daughter was born to Paris to, to see her. And, um, you know, I, said, I looked at him and I said, well, she's not, she's not very, uh, she's not so black looking, is she? And he said, oh, you know, so she's just a Palomino. <laughs> it's like, you know, he's got these words from the South. Quadroon, Octoroon, Mulatto. Yeah. And yeah. Pa- Palomino is like a type of horse that's uh-huh. like, you know, white, white to blonde hair, uh-huh. you know. Um, he's like, you know, there were, I had two or three classmates that looked like this. He said, you know, there, the, uh, the idea of the other is false. It's always been like this. There have always been people like this on the segregated side of town. Mm. You know, there have always been, you know, sometimes those people disappeared into the larger population. This is part of the reason why so many white Americans, without even knowing it, have enough, um, technically, theoretically, have enough uh, African, sub-Saharan African DNA within them to have been enslaved under, mm-hmm. you know, the strictest uh, laws of hypodescent that used to obtain in the South. Was it 132nd black? 132nd. You, you know, if you, you think about that. officially, quote, colored. My daughter can basically pass anywhere in Europe. Mm-hmm. She's a fourth. She's like a fifth. But <laughs> to get down to 132nd, mm-hmm. I mean, this is, this is, this is nuts. But uh, yeah. there are millions of, of white Americans who have 132nd black blood in them at this point. Right. There, which is to say there are millions of white Americans who are more white than Elizabeth Warren is Native American. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so... Let's talk about the idea of race as a social construct in general. Uh, what does that mean to you? How does that cut against prevailing notions of race? And do you oppose that with racial essentialism or with the notion that race is a biologically valid concept? How do you parse that question? Yeah, well, I, 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 I reject the idea that race is a biological essence that is, you know, that is identifiable, measurable, significant. Um, this is something that a lot of people on the left will say, like, yeah, okay, we all, we all know that. But mm-hmm. actually, this is coming back with some uh, – this is, this is not something that everybody accepts. And, you know, I, in the summer of 2017, spent a lot of time talking to uh, explicitly white supremacist thinkers in Europe and America mm. for a piece I was doing for The New Yorker um, on the French origins of this, uh, of this idea of replacement that became, you know, Richard Spencer's and Charlotte, Charlottesville's, uh, rallying cry. Mm-hmm. Um, someone like Richard Spencer, who I interviewed, he'll just say, of course he believes in, in biological race. So do the, the French thinkers like, uh, um, Alain de Benoit and some of these people that are, are inspiring the Americans, whether they know it or not, they, they do actually believe that there is something to, uh, biological race. Um, nowadays, on the left, we might call, talk about like population pools or things like that. Um, but I, you know, the human, um, the human being is too malleable for me to, you know, for, for me to accept that. What we really talk about on the left more is the idea that race is a is a rigid social category that you can't transcend, no matter how, you know, no matter how much you would want to. I get a lot of skepticism from people that, 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 that hold the two uh, ideas at the same time. Race is, race is not an essence, but essentially it's socially constructed to the point where we have to behave as though it is an essence. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm pushing back against a lot on the left. I think it's... I'm not spending too much time arguing about biological race, though that is part of the book, because I think you have to mention that everybody doesn't accept this on, at face value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the argument from the left now is is definitely not that race is a bio, biologically valid concept although i think most people would recognize that given the categories as we've drawn them there are some differences in terms of like your susceptibility to get certain diseases like right, tay sacs and sure. 
That's population and, groups, though. Right, right. Because we always talk about, and people, in the comments to an article I wrote recently, I saw this, people will say, but yeah, but, you know, of course it's not real, but, but sickle cell is a black disease. Right, but no, right. but Greeks get sickle cell, too. It has, right. it's about where, you, where your population group is being, why you developed that, because it actually, it, it's, I believe it's for um, protecting groups against malaria. Mm. You know? So it actually, it, it's not about, there's nothing essentially linked to blackness about having the sickle cell trait. Um, right. Other groups can have it, too. That's, it, it, whenever you try to identify that, the thing yeah. that makes somebody black yeah. or white, you can never pinpoint that thing. That's right. Um, so, but there's a left-wing flavor of essentialism that you rightly point out is a matter of thinking that race is a socially rigid category that you cannot choose to escape. Right. They would attack you on the grounds that you, Thomas, at least as a kid, uh, as, a, as a young black man growing up, someone seen as black, and perhaps you had a kind of colorist privilege since you were light-skinned, but nevertheless, you were seen as black by the surrounding society. Therefore, you ought to identify as black. You have to identify as black. It's not a choice. It's that there's no individual agency. It's really a matter that when you come into contact with a policeman, right. whether you that. like it or not, you will be seen as black. And I've gotten this, I've gotten this many times as well when I try to, you know, however tepidly defend a kind of individualist, universalist human ethic where I feel that I'm Coleman first before I am whatever social category you want to put on me. Well, that doesn't really matter because when you get pulled over by the right. cops, you're going to be black in that instance. And then there's an implied, therefore, you ought to identify blackness as an important part of your identity all of the time. I, and, and I think you rightly point out that this is something of a fallacy, right? Like, I think how that, do you view that argument? I think there's, there's, there's a couple of problems with that. The first is that whether cops identify you by something that's not real or not, it doesn't necessarily mean that you should just accept their definition of you. I think that one has to still define oneself. If race doesn't exist, um, and I use an example of this, I live in France now. Um, in France, my race is, your identity is always what you think of yourself and what society reflects back at you. I understand that this is, you can't just walk around, I can't just say I'm Japanese. Mm -hmm. um, no, society will not recognize that. It's, an, it's a negotiation. But in France, I'm not read as an African-American man. When I walk down the street, I'm typically uh, thought to be, and sometimes I'm profiled as, uh, a North African. Mm. Um, and that comes with actual consequences in airports and stuff. Like, I'm treated as an identity I'm not. I'm not going to go and, and, and start thinking of myself as a North African because that's how I'm treated by society. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that if you have a, if you have a, a serious um, rejection of race as, as a valid... Uh, way of organizing human beings, that you should just accept um, the idea of yourself as black because cops will treat you as though you're black. Mm. I think that you have to deal with the actual reality. I still have to be careful that uh, profiling can affect me, but, it, but, but I still have to maintain my own idea of myself, and I have to articulate that idea of myself mm. and, and push back against what society imposes on me. Mm. So um, earlier you, you mentioned something that your father said about your mother. Your mother was what we would call white. Father is what we would call black. I almost feel, I, I almost feel the urge to put scare quotes around all of these words in this conversation. Well, because, because he's heavily descended from Europe as well. Right, that's right. Um, as are most, as, black, as most our, black people are something like what, 20%? The, 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 the averages range from, uh, the average African-American uh, has 
between 73 and 80 percent sub-Saharan African right. DNA. That's a lot of Europe. That's up to 27 percent, almost all European, because most right. African Americans actually don't have significant Native American in them. Mm-hmm. It's almost all European. Right. Uh, so one thing, despite that, that your, your father would say about your mother, as you mentioned earlier, is uh, she has a black consciousness. You know, she, yeah. So he would joke that she's, she's not really white. She's just light skin. Um, to me, I don't know how that reads to you, but does that read as a statement about how we transcend racial categories? Or does it not read as a kind of racial essentialism of its own? Because it implies it's like almost dualist in the philosophical sense that we have a mind and a, we, have a, we have a body and a mm-hmm. soul and they can be mismatched. Which I think is to he, say, I think he's um, being fun. I think he was saying those statements in joking situations. And right. I think, but I think, he, I think there was a little bit of truth to his joke. He was saying that she's a, she has an achieved perspective is what he was saying. He was saying that she's consciously thought about her social position in society as white. And for not all intents and purposes, but for a lot of intents and purposes, she began living in a, a, a pretty black social, a socially black life. Mm-hmm. She had a black husband and two black sons in society who, you know, could be stopped and were stopped. My brother was beaten by cops. He had his teeth knocked out mm-hmm. by police in front of my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, she was dealing with situations that come that typically come to black people and wouldn't come to her if she were not living. If she, if she made different life decisions and she was aware of what that meant and she was aware of what she was giving up and what she was gaining, I would say, too, she was aware of what she was gaining by leaving a kind of um, tribally insulated world that she was raised in. And so he would say she achieved a perspective that um, is not, there's nothing essential about it. There's nothing about her skin or her, or her, or her blood about it, but that she's, she's aware of blackness. Mm. You see yeah. what I'm saying? She has that perspective. But, of, but of course, he, he's aware of the irony, and he's making a joke. Of course she's a white lady. And, mm-hmm. and he's aware that when she walks out in the world, people don't think much about what her consciousness is. She's treated as such. Yeah. When I read that quote, you know, I, I chuckled, and I, I, thought, I did think it was funny. Um, but it reminded me of something that Ayanna Presley said recently, yeah. not jokingly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. With, without the layer of irony that makes it funny rather than upsetting which was something along the lines of black voices yeah we we don't need black faces that aren't black voices we don't need hispanic faces that aren't hispanic voices implying that it's possible to be in a black body but not have the correct black thought right that's a very dangerous and old kind of critique and it 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 always raises the question who decides Mm -hmm. (laughs) who gets to decide what's an authentic black voice because Mm -hmm. that means that there's only one acceptable way to speak and any deviation from that you lose your racial authenticity that's again what we're getting back to when we're talking about how um as a teenager i kind of very simplistically thought that there was um one way of behaving that would increase my black authenticity my racial legitimacy and there's one way that would like that would be a deviation from that i think that's a very 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 pernicious kind of thought to creep into the to the progressive leftist uh, identity politics discourse and i don't know that she was making that statement um entirely aware of how dangerous that statement Mm -hmm. uh, you know i i I think that in a lot of these cases people are saying things that uh that reach back to to bigger conversations meaning something smaller than that i I, i'm not sure what her intentions were with that Mm, that's right yeah um it, it also strikes me that the same argument that you made against biological essentialism 
also refutes the social essentialism of the left, which is to say there is no race that cannot get sickle cell um, or Tay-Sachs, I think, mm -hmm. right? The, the, there's nothing, there's no one attribute you can find. That you can ever pinpoint, yeah. That you can pinpoint. That, that I think, is also arguably true of social. So, like, you can look up... There's uh, no group that can't be shot by police. That's right. That's right. I mean, and, and look up, you know, the video of Daniel Shaver getting yeah. shot. Begging you, for his life. Begging for his life, if you doubt that. Which is not to say that it is equally prevalent right. among every race. Obviously... Uh, on almost any sort of racist insult that you can think of, black people have been far more subject to it than probably any other race in the American context, at least. Uh, which is not to say that there is any group that has been devoid of historical oppression of some kind, at least if you go back long enough. So it, it also refutes the essentialism of the left to note that. Well, yeah, I think that, that what you're saying makes the argument for why the best way to treat some of these things is to have holistic kind of, you know, you, you want to have like criminal justice reform mm -hmm. that would actually treat this malady no matter who it afflicts. Right. And not pinpoint a single group. Mm -hmm. Although fixing criminal, think, fixing police citizen interactions would disproportionately help um, blacks, but even more than blacks, it would disproportionately help native Americans who are, who are um, killed by police at extraordinary, um, Rates. It's like 10.9 for Native Americans. It's 6.66 for blacks, 2.9 for whites, and it's like 0.2% or something like that for Asians. You know, Per 100,000 or something? Per million. Per million, okay. Yeah. So actually, these are low numbers for everybody, but Native Americans are almost twice as likely as blacks to be killed by police. I didn't know that. So that leads into the conversation about colorblindness. How should our policies recognize or not the the dimension of race um and this is usually opposed to what's called color consciousness or race consciousness and uh it's related to the conversation about whether race is socially constructed but it's not it's it's not determined by that conversation which is to say you can think race is a so social construct and still be race conscious or sure. be against colorblindness or, or in favor of it. Um, I, I've, I've thought recently that colorblindness really has a PR problem in the sense that, so for example, Bernie Sanders several months ago said something along the lines of, you know, we should not be electing politicians based on their skin color right we should really be electing them based on their policies, which to me read like a straightforward indication that the person talking is sane. And I mean, it's almost right from Martin Luther King. There's, there's a very similar quote that he, that he wrote. And I think, uh, where do we go from here? In any case, it, you know, even 10 years ago, I think probably five years ago, that statement would have gone down smooth with, American media, but in 2019, it didn't. The, the, the following night, he was laughed at, mocked by Colbert on, on The Late Show. And Colbert is hardly, hardly a radical, right? He's, he's pretty center-left. I find him reasonable most of the time. Um, how do you see the evolution of the, uh, you know, the notion of colorblindness in the past maybe five years 
uh, how do you where do you stand? You know, if you accept the dichotomy at all in the in the debate between colorblindness and race consciousness. Sure. I mean, I think that you're absolutely correct that we're in a very different place than even five years ago. We're certainly in a different place than uh, President Obama's first term. Um, colorblindness is something that's laughed at. I understand. Um, I'm sensitive to the issue because I do think that uh, um, life experiences, I don't think there's anything essential about it. There's nothing in your bones that makes you see things a certain way. There's nothing in your genes. Life experiences uh, impact what um, you're aware of. So I look at something outside of the race conversation, the recent discussion in the past couple of years about, around Me Too, right? There's just a lot of uh, experiences that many women go through that I hadn't ever thought of before. So you could say that having um, women in certain positions, it, it, it's not just that it doesn't matter who enacts policies because the policies are all that matter. It, it means that they might have ideas or bring up policies that would escape me because I, it just wouldn't occur to me. Mm. And so we probably do have to have, um, or, or I'm certain that we do have to have um, viewpoint diversity, right? Um, I'm not saying that I can't come to the same conclusions that a woman can because I'm anatomically a male, but I'm saying that my life has taken me in directions where I'm, I'm willing to admit that I miss certain things. I can imagine that uh, Bernie Sanders misses certain things about certain minority experiences, even though um, I'm sure he could... He, there's nothing that prevents him from ever being able to understand those things. Um, so we're probably not at a stage where we can talk seriously about absolute colorblindness if we think that you know black, black people, Latinos, women... Jews, they tend to have life experiences that can lead them to conclusions that escape people that are not having those life experiences. When it comes to politicians or leaders, though, I, I feel that that argument... So if the argument is that one's identity is a proxy, an imperfect one, but a, but a decent one, for the people you're going to advocate for, the things you're going to think of that, say, a white person would not have thought of. So that's why I'm pro black politicians on balance, right? It seems like if if the identity is a proxy for the policies or the way of thinking, if we can just look at the policies, then we don't need the proxy. And I that, agree. in, no, in I agree. practice, that's what people do. You know, the moment you're talking about Clarence Thomas, um, no one says like well <laughs> the fact that he's black means he'll probably he's likely to institute pro black policies. It's then there's a, a laser sharp focus on what his actual decisions were and all the ways in which they allegedly harm black people. Right. So I feel, I do think there is an argument actually for racially diverse politicians. Like I, 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 I think the United States would be worse off, much worse off if we had, if the Senate were only white people, I'm, I'm certain of it. And just in terms of people seeing themselves reflected in the governing body of the country for, for oh, social the power cohesion. of symbolism. Yeah. yeah symbols yeah. do matter. Yeah. Um, but it's true that, I mean, I would say that Clarence Thomas's uh, extre extreme conservatism is probably actually like closely linked to his identity. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's an extreme reaction to his mm -hmm. identity, but uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I think that there's, it, it's difficult to make the case that, uh, that an, an entirely white uh, Senate would make no difference. Right. Even, even if I agree, even if, you held the policies constant, right. Right. like like just picture Kamala Harris believing everything she does, but she's white. Right. I think, and likewise for Cory Booker, whomever, whomever else, I think that's worse because 
the you know it, it's just bound to lead black people to feel less a part of the nation right, right. I mean, so how did the how old were you when barack obama was elected 12 i think what did that mean to you to, i mean you're young oh, I mean, it you, was, you took it as kind of normal but it must have meant something right to no, 12 year old yeah i mean it meant something because i could feel how meaningful it was mm-hmm. to my parents and my grandparents um because if, if you had asked any almost any black person in 2006 2007 right are you are we going to get a black president in our lifetime it was like a reflexive and knowing no impossible impossible yeah. and what was behind that reaction was the sense that the country isn't there yet um you know, it, many of the people saying that remember, you know, have had many racist, many racist experiences in their lifetime. There was nothing about George Bush's presidency that really signaled that we were about to have a black right. president. Although Bush was, you know, by no means an Archie Bunker type either. Um, but the sense was, and this is a point that that I often think about: having a black president would be too meaningful. It would mean that we had made some kind of progress mm-hmm. that I think we haven't. Therefore, I don't think we're going to have one. However, in retrospect, yeah. now, if you say that Barack Obama's presidency was a landmark moment for race relations, There's such you get cynicism. something akin to an eye roll. Yeah, it didn't mean is, anything. It didn't mean, <laughs> yeah. but, but then why were we doubting that it was going to happen before? Right. That, that, that's a direct contradiction, right. I think. And, and it, it makes me feel that, at least on the left right now, politics... Is is identity politics, especially, is not about progress. It's the moment there is something that before it happens, we define as monumental, but then after it happens, we define as sort of big shrug, yeah. Sort of yeah, we define with a shrug. We're we're pocketing these gains mm-hmm. so quickly. It implies to me that it, it progress is not really at the core of the kind of politics that is practiced on the left at least on the far left well it's it's very difficult to how do you measure when you've progressed enough to to feel that like will the playing field ever be completely level i mean how do you level the playing field completely how does human life ever how is a human life ever equal to another but when is when do you reach a point where you, where you say you know um things have largely improved and i think that that's something that can never happen for enormous numbers of people all at the same time i think some people um, level at the playing field uh, at times when others don't, and then but we but we have conversations as though this is what is so troubling about um, identity politics or or, or 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 speaking about people in large abstract color categories. We don't live, we don't have the same experiences. You are already probably living a more or less leveled out life. There are a lot of black people who are too. So so we don't we miss so much complexity and nuance of what it means to have progressed, you know, and, and, and so when we reject the idea that there was a black president, it seems as though nothing can ever happen for us. To, there can never be enough the way that the conversation is set up. That's right. And that was one of my reasons for opposing reparations paid to all descendants of slaves, at, at least if reparations is meant as a sort of check with slavery in the memo line which uh, many people mean it to, you know, you know, intend it to mean broader structural reforms. Right. But reparations as a check, I get, one of the points that I've made is that five years ago, Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote The Case for Reparations for The Atlantic, sort of bombshell essay about the topic that renewed public interest in it. And in that piece, 
He said there is no way that the idea of reparations could enter the political mainstream because America is not ready, which reminded me of the arguments many people made before Obama. And I don't think it was crazy at the time. I mean, uh, you know, like I, I probably would have agreed if you had asked me. But then every single Democratic, every single mainstream Democratic right. candidate now puts that <laughs> on right. their agenda, you know? Right. And it happened. It happened overnight. In, That's right. In, in retrospect. Right. Which which to me, it, it's the same thing. When you make a prediction based on your model of America as as fundamentally racist and that prediction turns out to be wrong, it turns out to be that actually reparations is in the mainstream, whether or not it happens. It doesn't correct your, it doesn't correct your fundamentally negative assessment. Though. It, right. it makes, it makes no, it makes impact. no dent on the model. Not at all. Yeah. It's, although it should. Right. And I'm interested in talking about essentialism and, 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 and you're much more acquainted with these arguments than I am. What does representation actually mean? And how do you measure a black life in a country as mixed up as, as America? My, my, my children, my Swedish looking children are, American descendants of slaves. At what point do you become a life that is too far away from the experience to merit mm. repair? Or does it matter that the, you know, the socially they've they've inherited less wealth through the generations? I have no idea. It, it seems to me that it's impossible for me to, when you talk about affirmative action or things like this, it's impossible for me to, um, with a clear conscience, allow my kids, for example, to ever apply to a school mm. and, and 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 mark a box that would have them get. Um, extra consideration for being black, even though they're right. descended from slaves. I wouldn't have them mark white. I would have them mark nothing or other. Mm -hmm. But you know what I mean? How no, yeah. I mean, I, I felt the same guilt marking the black box, even though I'm I'm unambiguously seen as black in this country. Although if I if I went to Africa, I would be relatively light skinned. Here, I'm sort of center, uh, you know, mm -hmm. like in the middle of of the blackness skin spectrum. I think. Um, but I, but knowing the advantages that come along with that, at least in the spheres I run in, knowing that, you know, if we're talking about the social ladder that someone like me would be climbing, if I were more into investment banking or consulting or tech, knowing that almost all of these companies I'd be applying to are starving for people with black skin and they don't necessarily care that those people are descendants of American slavery. It, it's just as good from their point of view. If, if you're Nigerian. If yeah, you're Nigerian. Totally. Um, but I've also felt that guilt. And I, you know, my, my friend Desiree Campbell, who is Jamaican, lives in the States now and very dark-skinned. Uh, she actually intentionally does not check the black box because she is so committed to knowing that whatever wow. she got, she yeah. got it because she's Desiree, not because she's black. And she identifies, similar to our friend Camille Foster. She's uh, a race abolitionist? She's a race ab abolitionist in the sense that she says she's Jamaican, if you mm -hmm. ask her. And the well, notion of blackness yeah. is foreign to her. Uh, obviously, she grew up in Jamaica where almost everyone is black. So like many people from Africa as well, if mm -hmm. you grow up and everyone is black, you're like a fish in water. Mm -hmm. And there's no reason for you to ever recognize that That. Um, you are, quote, black. No, blackness and whiteness function on a binary. They're only right. meaningful in opposition to the other. That's right. Yeah. Um, so talking about leveling out the playing field, let's talk about the SAT's adversity score. Uh, can you describe this? And what is your take 
on this attempt to level yeah, up. Yeah, sure. I, I, I wrote an op-ed in the Times when this was announced uh, last spring, and I found myself in a bizarre position of actually debating uh, David Coleman. Or there wasn't much of a debate. We were both on NPR on the same show, and he kind of refused to respond to any of the points that I made. Mm-hmm. But um, the SAT, the College Board, which administers the SAT, introduced a measure, uh, an adversity <clears throat> index, uh, um, dashboard they call it, on a scale of 0 to 100 measures, tr- takes in many factors and measures whether you've had an adverse or privileged life. Mm. And, you know, it standardizes this, and the results are not uh, shown to uh, students and applicants, but they're, they're released to schools in addition to your scores. And, and, and they come up with a weighted score, right? Is that no, your, your score is your score. Your, score. your test score is your score. But in addition to that, you have the um, adversity index applied. You know? So they just give you the adversity index, but they, they don't give you an, like an adversity-adjusted score as well? No, no, no. no just the they index. Don't do that. No. Okay. But uh, they say it helps them identify um, kids who have really overcome um, some tough odds, and I'm sure that it does. I, I don't want to like, downplay that, but I also think that it's, there's some hubris involved, and it's, and it's just uh, contrary to how human life works to think that you can um, measure and standardize uh, adversity in, in a life. You know, you can come... From many forms of adversity, some of the kids who had, and I don't, I'm not saying this in a glib way, some of the kids that I knew who had some of the worst problems to overcome when they arrived in school were some of the wealthier kids that I'd met who came from very unloving families, mm-hmm. you know, like families that will mess you up for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. but they lived in a good neighborhood, you know? And what does it mean to hit them with the full privilege score or and to give, I, I use the example of uh, my best friend from high school who... Um, would have scored off the charts on the adversity index. But this is not measurable. He was coming over my house every day after school, studying with my father, who was, you know, teaching us for hours every day uh, SAT prep work. He got a good enough score um, to go to Syracuse and kept studying with my father and aced the LSAT and went to Harvard and Oxford. And um, in every way was from a loving family. And just because the neighborhood he came from, it looks as though... He was from an adverse social context, but he had all kinds of support that um, kids I have known um, who would have, who would be thought of as privileged, d- did not have. Right. And I, and and I and these are just two individuals. You can never prove a universal by a particular. But I, I just use these examples to say that how do you measure privilege? How do you measure di- uh, adversity? How do you measure difficulty? How do you measure Sorrow. We all react to these things different. Some people are more resilient. I mean, these are intensely complex things, and to dole out uh, scores that are then um, used in private, I think it's just it's, it, it, it's getting away from where we ought to be going. So let me provide a counterargument because my initial my initial response was to agree with you to think that the adversity index was silly uh, and hubristic, and I actually still think that it is. Obviously, there is some signal in the noise if you're measuring the, you know, the crime rate where someone grew up, the, uh, I think, the graduation rate at the high school, average income in the neighborhood. You're going to do an okay job of predicting who who had adversity and who didn't. But like you, I know, I mean, I know someone who grew up in a, essentially a mansion or a very big house and was beat by their parents like you cannot measure regularly that. that's not right? going to be measured it's not measured at all 
Um, and uh, so there is something, there is something sort of bean counting and farcical and scientistic in the sense of over relying on science or having the pretense of accuracy where you don't have it. On the other hand, compared to what? The question is the adversity index. The question might not be, is the adversity index good in the abstract, to which we might answer, no, it's very bad. But is it better than what we have now? So the question is, what do we have now? Right, right now, we kind of have a system of college admissions that perhaps without stating it explicitly believes that to be black is to be to have had a life of adversity so that's why we're, we're going to give black people a leg up in admissions um i guess that's not that kind of used to be the argument more than it is now now there's this term diversity well yeah and right. that's where um glenn lowry is rather convincing on this i think uh, when you when you move to the the goal of diversity in itself you you concede quite a lot i i, I don't feel as strongly about it as Glenn does, but I find it difficult to, to contradict him here. When, when diversity is the goal and, 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 and you have blacks and Latinos who basically would not be in these campuses, on these campuses in, in great numbers on test scores alone, you basically say that it's edifying for white people to have them around and that, and, and, and that they just have to be there. Mm -hmm. And when you do that in perpetuity, you really reify a kind of... Uh, kind of white supremacy that, that we're trying to contradict, actually, right? You have two standards, and, and you basically say that their presence, it's not deserved, but it's good for everybody. Mm. That's, that's incredible. On one level, it's insulting. On another level, it's just, I mean, think about it. If, if, if that's really the way that college education is set up, I mean, that's, you cannot, you actually can't get to an equal situation. Mm. Well, I think... I agree with that, but I'm, I'm hearing a counter-argument, which is it's not that we're saying black people are good f for the white people on campus. It's that we're saying society is so racist, uh, so structurally racist in ways that are sort of invisible to the naked eye, but nevertheless very constraining, that what we're trying to do with affirmative action is just put, put a thumb on the scale so that black students who, if they had had the advantage that the average white student had, would have gotten into Harvard, but because they didn't have the money for coaching, they didn't have the money, they didn't have the sort of cultural knowledge that they should be applying to all these places to begin with. You know, I, I was walking on Columbia campus the other day, and I saw a flyer that said something like 50% of, of high-achieving, low-income students don't apply to an Ivy League college because they don't know to. Right. That's actually an important issue. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree as well. I think a lot of people f who don't know anyone who have gone to college right. just naively assume. That's an enormous barrier. Right. It's, the, it's not even a talent the barrier. The social capital of yeah. understanding what's even out there and possible. Right. My mom, for example, who was brilliant, went to Stuyvesant from the South Bronx, didn't apply to college because she didn't know anyone who had gone. And wow. so some recruiter just found her test scores and was like, oh, my God, you need to go to college and just plucked her. But I think there are many people in that situation who maybe don't get plucked. Uh, well, that's, I mean, that's kind of an empirical question. But I guess back to the adversity score, 
could you not see an argument that this is better than the current regime if yeah, if I, this were to replace the current regime of sort of assuming that black people are at a disadvantage that Asians aren't at at an advantage I guess that's the implicit see, the, logic the, the, in the, the, system. Asian, the Asian part is what always I stumble on because yeah. and you've written about this yourself yeah. uh, quite convincingly I think you were talking about this on Sam Harris's podcast or he brought it up with you in this article about about uh, Asians like in their cram schools getting Chinese um, American immigrants in Flushing Queens getting you know into the, the specialized schools like Stuyvesant at greater rates than everybody else there was a throwaway line in the article that Sam mentioned, which was like, many of them go without lunch to pay for these. Yeah, no, I think these. I mentioned that. Yeah, they, Did you, they, yeah. they scrimp on essentials like food yeah, to but, pay for test prep. But that's neither here nor there. That's neither here nor there. Yeah. It was, but no, but that, that's everything. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That but is, they wrote about it as if it right. was a throwaway as line. A, as though they have a structural advantage. Right. That's actually, that destroys the entire argument. It, as it really I'm does. Concerned. I'm willing to, you know, I'm willing to accept uh, the the fact that a lot of white mediocrity gets uh, elevated or just can never hit below a certain floor mm -hmm. and that a lot of um, black and Latino talent um, just doesn't get a shot. Mm. I, I, but but the, but but the, the idea that it can't be done is what I kind of reject. And this is what I what I was trying to make clear on NPR with 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 David Coleman from the College Board is that. My father, I, I wasn't raised in privilege. I was raised, the privilege that I had was I had a two-parent loving home and I had an educated father that really spent time on my education and insisted that that was important. This is what a lot of immigrant families actually do, mm -hmm. uh, with or without social capital, or cultural capital, or money. You know, And, I, and so I do think that uh, this is probably, you're right, I'm, I'm willing to admit this is probably better in some ways if it identifies um, overlooked talent. But it's a horrible situation, and, and I think the, 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 the idea of values at some point and, and cultural traditions and, and, and effort and, 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 and just resilience has to come into the conversation as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that I, I completely agree, but it, it's seen as, quote-unquote, blaming the victim. Of course it it's is. It's seen as a, you know, a right-wing talking point to actually even mention Asian-American achievement in this conversation it's, it's one of the most it's, it's one of the things i cannot understand the most but yeah. we in america we don't know how to talk about any of the racial complexity any of the identity complexity uh that doesn't hit on the black white binary very well that's right this, yeah. th this we stumble on this constantly we don't know what to do with asians right so we we end up just not talking about them right we don't talk <laughs> about the fact that many the, the majority of them in the i don't have the figures in front of me, but i know for a fact the majority of them in new york city are are from um, low-income families. That's right. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and it also throws a wrinkle in the idea that the tests or the society in general is tilted towards a white sort of. Um, it's built for white people to succeed because it's built on white values. Richard Carranza. Yeah, the the, ch the, chancellor, the chancellor of, of New, New York, York City, City schools. Public Schools, right? I'm sure you've seen. It. He released yeah. his 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 points uh, for teacher training uh, to get rid of white supremacy culture or to mm -hmm. help eradicate it. Aspects of white supremacy culture that he and his staff had identified were things like objectivity, mm -hmm. you know, emphasis on the written word. Yeah, right. But, like like gr grammar, like proper grammar. It's incredibly. Incredibly, incredibly racist insulting. to assume that yeah. grammar and the insistence on 
proper grammar is a manifestation of white supremacy culture. What that implies is that black people, black students cannot be expected to have proper grammar because this is a value that white America is imposing on and other black America somehow the, the implication that black America rejects, which is yes. not the black America that I'm familiar Nor with. Nor is it the one that I'm familiar with. And this actually, this is James Baldwin's point. When you, when, when the, 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 the category is the only thing that matters and can't be transcended, you end up reinforcing the very um, aspects of social life that you want to transcend. When, when, when all that matters is that whiteness and white supremacy culture have these attributes these attributes don't apply to blacks. You just reinforce the very inequality you're trying, you're supposedly trying to, to bridge. Yeah. So long, so long as there are separate standards, there's always going to be an imposed hierarchy that comes with that. Mm. So, I mean, I was, I was talking recently to someone who is actually a superintendent of schools in New York about this very topic, about why it is that black and Hispanic students are doing worse, uh, what needs to be done. And her viewpoint, to put it as charitably as possible, was that the problem largely is white people. It's that most white people don't know enough about structural racism. They are not aware that they themselves are biased in ways that they can't recognize. The solution has to be, as Richard Carranza has done, to spend some $20 million on implicit bias trainings to essentially teach white people to expand their perspective, to understand to the extent that they can what it's like to be black and to practice observing racism in action in very subtle ways throughout society. So she had all of these stories, stories that I think you and I have both been on the wrong end of, of little subtle ways in which racism can pervade everyday life uh, comments someone makes to you that they wouldn't have made to you if you were white. Yeah, yeah what, what is sometimes called microaggressions. Um, the idea is that what, what we need to be doing in order to make life better for black people, particular, particularly for black people at the bottom of society, is for white people to essentially get their act together and to really study the black experience, to, to learn about slavery but not only slavery to learn about the hundred or so year of years of racist policies after slavery think about how patronizing that is white people are agents they can be prevailed upon they can be bad they can they they can they can they can be evil they can be racist or they can be prevailed upon to be better and black people's condition is completely dependent on whether they are prevailed upon or not whether we can somehow reach their um their conscience, mm-hmm. but black people are are somehow not agents at all, and, and and can't change and can't be prevailed upon to behave in better or worse ways. We're just waiting to receive white <laughs> white people move first, and we just yeah. react. Yeah, we're like, that, that, that's that's incredible to me. Right, and that's not how that's not how that's not how I saw black life in my home, and it's not it's never been how I've thought of my own situation. It's a very radical claim. And I mean radical in the sense that the vast majority of black people on its face wouldn't view themselves that way or anyone they know that way. It's, a, it's the kind of claim that I think you can only really believe if you are hyper-educated. And I don't mean to say that there are no I think you're right about that. non-professors who, who buy into this worldview, but it's very counterintuitive. 
uh, it, it is a kind of picture of like black people as a collective weather vane and you know what direction we're pointing is just a consequence of which way the wind is blowing the, and wind, the wind is and the wind is white people essentially yeah, yeah. the wind is white people and they can um, blow any way they can choose which way they blow i mean right. it's it's extraordinary